1: This week on Q&A, West Point English professor Elizabeth Samet discusses her annotated edition of Ulysses S. Grant's memoirs.
0: Elizabeth Samet, you have a book that's over a thousand pages long called The Annotated Memoir of Ulysses S. Grant. What's different about this book than all the other Grant books?
1: Well, the uh, the subject of Grant is obviously well uh, written about by so many people, um, mostly by historians for obvious reasons. I'm a professor of literature, and so my primary interest really was in his language and the way he represents his war experience especially. And I wanted to try to situate the book in its literary and cultural context in the 19th century and also in a sort of longer term, longer horizon, to think about it in the spectrum of war writing from antiquity really to the present day and how challenging it is to represent war in language and how grant really does rise to the occasion in that respect you
0: teach English literature to what group
1: I teach uh, English to cadets at the United States Military Academy at West Point, and I teach everything from our first-year cadets, known as plebes, to the uh, upper-class cadets who are sometimes English majors. Um, we have a full range of uh, undergraduate majors, including English literature. Is there
0: any way to describe the difference between teaching to a cadet at West Point and a, other, a student in a normal uh, university?
1: I think in many ways, there are many similarities, the subject matter, for example, but my students have a very particular idea of what they'll be doing after graduation, and so our study of literature has a context, uh, a shared context, that I think might not be the case at other institutions.
0: How did you go to West Point?
1: Actually, the, the part of that answer is Grant. Um, I was in graduate school and ended Where? up reading, at Yale, reading the... Memoirs, and I don't, I can't even tell anymore how I came to them, but there I was reading them when I was supposed to be writing my dissertation. And they surprised me immensely and introduced me to West Point, where he was an ambivalent cadet. And I found myself really attracted by his story and surprised by it. And then soon after that, the opportunity came up to teach there. So it was a happy coincidence.
0: What surprised you about the memoirs?
1: I expected from my limited acquaintance with 19th century memoirs a more florid, ornate approach to writing, but also a more romantic, heroic, glorified account of war. And his account is the antithesis of all of that. It's lean and spare in terms of the language itself. And it is, I, he regarded war as a business which he was trained to do, but he never re- reveled in it. And he never took delight or uh, any relish in the activity.
0: What's the period of time that these uh, memoirs cover?
1: So the memoirs cover, in a conven- in this way, they're a conventional 19th century autobiography in that they begin with his youth, his boyhood. doesn't spend much time on that. spends a great deal of time on the Mexican War. Some of the most interesting moments for me occur during the treatment of the Mexican War. And then he goes all the way up through the end of the Civil War and stops there.
0: What do you think of him?
1: Uh, I admire him. I admire him because he's fallible and because he often, though not always, but often in the memoirs will own up to that, will own up to failures, is willing to tell a joke on himself. I think in that he shared something with Lincoln um, in his sense of humor and his self-deprecation. And he was always willing to suggest that he had learned something or figured something out along the way.
0: One of the biggest surprises in the memoir isn't the memoir. It's a note on the flap of the book's cover. There is so much there. A Tanner's son, failing at so much, turned savior of his country, a slaveholder turned mass emancipator, the warrior transformed into a warrior poet. The words of Tanahisi Coates.
1: Yes, uh Ta-Nehisi Coates is a big Grant fan, and I think he captures quite beautifully. He did a wonderful series of blogs for, for The Atlantic on his experience of reading the memoirs. And I think that he found in Grant uh, someone who has deep flaws but also great virtues and who did rise from modest circumstances to become a great savior of the of the union and as coach suggests a mass emancipator serving that cause
0: where did you grow up i grew up in boston anybody in your family in the military
1: my father uh, was in the army air corps in world war ii
0: did you ever talk to him about that?
1: I did. I talked to him a lot about his, his war, about his army, uh, which was very different, of course, from today's army, um, and I think like many members of his generation, he uh, always downplayed those experiences um, and he was perfectly willing to talk to me about them. He, he served uh, much of the war as an air traffic controller uh, in India.
0: When uh, you teach at West Point, how often do you have to be in the classroom?
1: Um, I think we're in the classroom. It's probably comparable to most civilian institutions, so, you know, teach a a few courses each semester um, and then meeting with students uh, individually as well.
0: If I walked into your classroom, what would I most likely hear you talking about?
1: You'd most likely hear me talking about... uh, probably a specific passage in a work. I love to dig right in with poetry or prose to the text itself and to look at the evidence and see what it has to tell us before we jump to conclusions.
0: Do they read the memoirs?
1: They do. In fact, I'm teaching, uh, I've, I've always taught various excerpts for, for a variety of reasons, but this year I'm teaching our uh, war literature elective and we're focusing on the Civil War and so Grant's memoirs will be a big part of it.
0: So many people have come to this chair right here and talked about U.S. Grant. And I want to show you a little bit of video of of some of them and ask you why, how so many books have been written and whether or not they ever sell. Here's one of the most recent ones, Ron Chernow.
2: What he got into the habit of doing, kind of with great courage and fortitude, was that uh, he would go for four or five hours at a stretch. Uh, without eating or drinking anything, and that was really not simply to avoid the pain of the swallowing, but I think even more importantly not to have to take any painkillers that might interfere with his mental uh, clarity. So I don't know that any book, particularly any masterpiece like this, has ever been composed under such horrific circumstances. And, um, you know, it's a masterpiece. Uh, Even Mark Twain said uh, that style is flawless, no man can... Improve upon it, and Twain thought it was such a great military memoir that deserved to stand uh, alongside Caesar's commentaries. And many commentators and readers since then have agreed. What would you add to that?
1: Uh, well, I would suggest that it, that the story of the memoir's composition is part of what lends this book its great power for me. So I, I would agree with that. Um, the the pain that Grant suffered, the way that he had to conserve his energy. Uh, the Library of Congress, in addition to having the manuscript, has a collection of many of the notes that Grant would write, because it was so painful to speak, that he would write to his doctor. And the I had the really moving experience of reading uh, the manuscript alongside those notes, and what you see there is the dissolution of his physical body, and this desperate clinging to all, to all the energy, the reserves of energy he has left, and an iron determination to give all of every every last ounce of strength to the memoirs, to the completing of this book, because of course he is he doesn't want to write his memoirs initially, but is compelled to by a few uh, calamitous circumstances. Uh, in the last few years of his life, including bankruptcy and this diagnosis of his fatal cancer.
0: I don't know whether you tracked it or not, but do you know how many exact days there are after he finished this to when he died?
1: there it's it's only a few days about a, uh, i think less than than a week when he's doing the last uh, correcting proofs and things like that until he dies and he's up at a cottage in mount mcgregor near saratoga new york and um asks to be you can still go up there it's relatively unspoiled a lot of not a lot of people visit it um and you can see the circumstances in which he wrote it and the the same room and the chair in which he sat and you can get a sense of uh the whole atmosphere there when he was when he was working on it
0: back in 2016 ronald white also did a book on u s grant and he was here and here's just a little bit of what he had to say grant puts us right into
2: the story as if maybe lee could win maybe he would win he masters the idea of writing with action verbs he eschews adjectives and adverbs and john russell young who was traveling with him as a correspondent for a new york newspaper elicits from grant all kinds of personal reminiscences about the key figures of the era, Abraham Lincoln, George McClellan, Robert E. Lee, these become then part of the memoir, where Grant gives his own thumbnail sketches of why Abraham Lincoln, in his words, is the greatest figure of this whole era. And so it's just memorable to read this. It's very clear, spare English language. Lincoln said he liked the Saxon language, sturdy one-syllable words. Grant writes in the very same way.
0: Did you read his book?
1: Yes, yes, I've read his biography. Did you read Ron Chernow's book? Yes. So is there any difference a, between these books? Uh, yeah, I, th- I, think, um, I think Ron White's book is, is really interesting on a lot of different elements, uh, especially Grant's youth and his Methodism and um, a variety of attributes. I think uh, Ron Chernow emphasizes a couple of things. I think he he's, uh, emphasizes the presidency, and the various strides that the administration made on behalf of civil rights for African Americans, all of which, sadly, of course, are are erased in the Compromise of 1877. But um, he also makes, uh, Ron Chernow's book also makes much of Grant's alcoholism, as he calls it, uh, and I think uh, Chernow wants to change the way we think about Grant's relationship with alcohol uh, instead of looking at it as a moral failing as it would have been regarded in the 19th century to look at it more as uh, an addiction. Um, I, I don't regard I think Grant, when he was uh, alone in the West, away from his family, in between the Mexican and Civil Wars, uh, did probably drink to excess, and that the circumstances surrounding his resignation from the Army are mysterious, but that's really where the rumors start about his drinking. But I think I resist the temptation to make Grant's relationship or struggle with alcohol the main narrative of his life.
0: This is called an annotated memoir. What does that mean?
1: So it's full of uh, my own annotations and illustrations uh, throughout the work, and those are the moments where I try to read Grant's prose, Grant's descriptions in parallel with uh, descriptions of similar or the same episodes by his contemporaries, or descriptions, let's say, of a siege or of an attack, comparing those Grant's descriptions with those that come from other periods, everything from Caesar... uh, um, Ron now mentioned uh, the, the connection that Twain makes between Caesar's commentaries and Grant's memoirs. So I will put Caesar in there and Caesar's description of various uh, activities connected to war and then Grant's.
0: Twain was the publisher of the book. Yes. Um, <clears throat> how did you, what was the time when you said, I got to do this? Or who said this to you, Elizabeth Samet, you've got to do this annotated version?
1: Um, so fortunately, my editor said, would you like to do this? And I said, absolutely. I think that would be a great idea. And it sort of, uh, I realized at the time that I had been in my own way unwittingly preparing it, preparing it since graduate school when the book became so important to me. Um, and so it was really a kind of dream come true to be able to to spend so much time uh, with this book that had in many ways shaped my ideas of 19th century America, my ideas of military culture um, and various attitudes, a lot of that comes through through Grant for me.
0: When did you start?
1: Um, I guess I, I sort of poured on most of the work in the last uh, two or three years.
0: You mean so. it only took two or three years to do what you did here?
1: Yeah, I, I mean, it was in a, a sense of sort of organizing thinking that I had been doing for a long time, but it was a pretty intensive period of work.
0: Yeah. What's the most fun part of this for you?
1: Uh, there's, that's, a, that's a difficult question to answer in that uh, there were so many parts that I enjoyed. One of the parts that I enjoyed the most was going to battlefields and uh, being able to bring the book along and see the terrain. Uh, one of Grant's, I think, great strengths as a commander was his amazing ability to understand terrain and topography. And so he writes about it with an ease and uh, with a great clarity. But to be there once, I don't share that necessarily, that uh, automatic understanding of terrain. And so to be able to go to Shiloh, for example, and to be able to understand the uh, the, the topography that he's describing uh, in the book is was really a great treat for me. And, and one of the other elements that I, I greatly enjoyed is connected with that um, was photography, was being able to, uh, through photography, another way of making sense of the war and making sense of the way we remember it.
0: And there's a lot of your photography in the book.
1: Yes, I was fortunately able to include that, as well as images from the West Point Archives and from the Library of Congress and other places. What would you
0: say to someone who doesn't really care about the Civil War? And you know you find these people who <laughs> right. say, you get somebody right. that's totally for it, and then somebody else says, I don't care about the Civil War. Right. When you talk about Shiloh, where is it and what happened there?
1: So uh, Shiloh is in Tennessee, and it was the first major battle in the Western Theater. The Western Theater of the Civil War is, I think, largely neglected in favor of the Eastern Theater and the battles in Virginia. Um, and Shiloh, has a tr- it's a two-day battle. It has a tremendous number of casualties. And I think that like Antietam, which is probably a, a more well-known battle in the East, it really changes the way many people think about the war. I think a lot of soldiers and civilians had thought the Civil War would be over in a matter of months. Shiloh confirms for Grant in particular that, he would have to, that they would have to win the war uh, by complete conquest, um, that this was an all-or-nothing venture. So that
0: was 1862? Right. Um, how long did you spend there when you went to visit? Uh,
1: I spent a day, a, lo- a nice day, at Shiloh, and then and lo- looked around at Corinth in n- northern Mississippi as well, which is the where there's a still is a, an important railroad junction, and there it was the site of a, a battle and a siege um, in the war as well. Uh, it took uh, about a month for the Union troops to make it down to Corinth, and it's actually an interesting story um, which Grant writes about. By the time Uh, they get to Corinth. Grant had been, even though he won the Battle of Shiloh, he had been criticized heavily for not being prepared um, and for being surprised. The troops had not entrenched, and uh, Sherman, who was on the battlefield when the Confederates attacked, didn't seem prepared for it. Grant, whose headquarters were um, several miles away, made it down to the battle. And so there was a, there was some controversy there, controversy that actually raged throughout the rest of the 19th century. I think that battle is as much written about by the participants as any other. Um, and so when Henry Halleck arrived on the scene to take command, he sort of pushed Grant off to the side and made him second in command. And Grant essentially had not much to do. So the army took about a month to make its way to Corinth and Uh, Halleck and others were convinced that the Confederates were actually reinforcing Corinth when in fact they were evacuating and Grant has a wonderful passage in there where he says that many of the troops his troops were had been railroad men in civilian life and they used to put their ears to the rail and they could tell which trains were full and which were empty and the the railroad men said the trains the heavy trains are leaving and the empty trains are coming back, but the Confederates threw a ruse, uh, cheering incoming trains, actually ended up fooling the, the Union troops.
0: I, I remember the statistic. Help me out here. That it was at Shiloh, there were two thousand horses buried. Was it there, or was that just? You know? That's
1: there. There were many, and and I'm not sure of the exact number, but there were so many that when Sherman writes home about the battle afterwards, he he s- spends time telling his wife, actually, that the number of horses on the battlefield is, is astronomical and and uh, it, it's a shocking sight. Throughout the war, the number of horses and mules to be burned or buried was really incredible.
0: Here's, I think the first person I interviewed here on Grant was Jeffrey Perret uh, back in 1997. And I want to run a clip where he talks about Grant's role in the Civil War and see if you agree or disagree. Uh, No Grant, uh,
2: and there is no victory in the Civil War for the Union. The Civil War would have probably ended in a a stalemate with a negotiated peace rather than a a surrender. Now, what kind of peace that would be, I I don't know. But I believe that Grant was the only general who could coordinate the Union's strengths uh, and bring them to bear on on the Confederacy, uh, in time, to ensure Lincoln's reelection in 1864.
0: What would Abraham Lincoln say was Grant's biggest strength?
1: I think. Well, he he said it's a version of it several times. Was that he had a tenacity, and a will to keep going, uh, where other generals would have been daunted. Um, and I also, the other strength I think he had, and, and Grant, uh, Lincoln would have recognized this, was that Grant understood the political context of war fighting. And I'm not sure that all of his contemporaries did. So he understood sometimes that the timing of victories, he understood the need for what was called uh, the political general, the general who was an appointee, who could bring in votes, which uh, was particularly important, um, and could also. Uh, recruit effectively but may have had some political there were a few political generals john logan was one of them who actually turned out to be good uh, commanders in the field but many were not and it was a sort of inconvenience that grant and other professionals had to put up with but he understood the reasons for it and he understood that uh, lincoln's war aims had a great deal to do with tactics and operations and strategy that they were all of a piece
0: You talk about two historians, Lloyd Lewis and Bruce Catton, yes. and you talk about revisionism of Grant. When was he at his lowest, and I know in our surveys, we've done three surveys on presidents, he's gone Mm. from 33 up to 22, I believe, uh, over a period of about 10 years, but when was he at his lowest and why has there been a revision?
1: So he, but something we tend to forget is that at the time he died in eighteen eighty five he was the most famous American in the world, probably um, he had achieved a kind of celebrity probably even greater than lincoln's and in his world tour that he took after his presidency, he went all the way to Japan and was greeted everywhere he he went as a as a great hero um, and then soon after his death, he was- his death and his funeral uh, in which there were two uh, Confederate and two Union pallbearers, former Confederate and, and Union pallbearers, was a sort of great moment of national reconciliation. And unfortunately, that drive toward reconciliation coming on the heels of the end of Reconstruction um, was achieved at the expense of African Americans. And Frederick Douglass uh, in a speech uh, before uh, several years before Grant's death, talks about um, peace among the whites and what that would mean for the country. And uh, what it ended up meaning was um, the rise of Jim Crow in the South and um, rolling back all of the advances made during the war and in the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments for African-American civil rights. And the engines of uh, what we think of as a lost cause nostalgia really got into gear uh, during the 1890s and uh, throughout the early part of the 20th century, culminating, I think, uh, in the 50th uh, reunion at Gettysburg in 1913, where Woodrow Wilson, who was the first president um, from the South after the, the Civil War, and who introduced segregation uh, into Washington, D.C., into the federal workforce, was... Um, In his History of the American People um, espoused this similar sort of uh, idea about Reconstruction, that it was a a tyrannical uh, regime imposed on the South, and that the South had sort of liberated itself from this yoke. Um, And Grant was a casualty of that Lost Cause nostalgia, which uh, really dominated much of the century. And then Lewis and Canton, uh, working in the middle of the century, uh, really began, I think, a resurgence that's continued ever since. As we've continued to reevaluate the war and reevaluate our own attitudes toward uh, memorialization and commemoration,
0: can you t- explain more about lost cause? It, it, in my reading, and I'm no expert on any of this, but my reading that that phrase has come up more and more in recent years.
1: Right. The, the Southern cause uh, was romanticized, um, and, and these these engines of of mem- memorial engines really started revving up. I think almost. Before the war ended, but um, there were many people, including uh, former Confederate officers like Jubal Early in their memoirs uh, and several publications and journals, organizations like the United Daughters of the Confederacy, who worked earnestly to uh, burnish this lost cause. And so as a result, uh, the submerging of slavery and the rise of this idea of states' rights, sort of the decoupling of the cause of the Confederacy from slavery, and um, the cultivation of something we might that, that some have called the plantation myth—that in fact the antebellum South was a really peaceful, tranquil place, and that uh, you know everyone was really better off at that time—and so this idea, this this nostalgic lament, uh, this deeply romantic version of, of Southern culture. Um which really triumphed, I think, and there was nothing in the northern literature really that counteracted it. And so you know if the the uh, the historian Eric Foner uh, said this, I'm paraphrasing, but the the North won the war, but the South really won the memory uh, the war over the memory of the war. Well,
0: what do you think about the fact that the uh, Grant Museum is at Mississippi state, yes, the uh, run by John Marzalak, who wrote. Uh, a annotated version of this two years ago, right. and I wanted to ask you about that. What's the difference between what John Marsalek did and your book to start with? But what do you think of the fact that the Grant Museum is at Mississippi State University?
1: Right. Uh, well, I think that the library it couldn't be in better hands than John's, um, and i uh, spent a wonderful week down there doing research. Um, and I do think it's it's uh, you know it's just sort of an accident of of uh, circumstance that that that's where he is. Uh, that's where he taught and so the the um, library ended up there and i I think it's actually uh quite quite nice in a sense and fitting and maybe a, a sort of a um, a strange initially but perhaps ultimately appropriate idea that that the the preservation of grant's legacy can can happen in in the deep south um, his uh book, the the, the uh, annotated memoirs that he came out with uh, a few years ago, is the sort of crowning jewel in the papers of Ulysses S. Grant, which was started by John Y. Simon. And I think the memoirs had been conspicuously absent from that collection. Um, and so now that, that that's in place as well. And so um, John as a historian, and his team of historians... Uh, really, I think, emphasize and help us to understand um, a lot of the historical and military historical context. um, So if I had
0: his book and your book, what would be the substantive difference in the two?
1: I think uh, that that his book offers um, great—whenever, for example, Grant offers a casualty number or mentions a a figure, uh, John will have the exact casualty number and where to find it and the sort of fact-checking of of Grant and the illumination of— Every sort of every every figure has a wonderful little biography um, that will tell us you know who that figure is. My book, I think, I think they complement each other in a lot of ways. In that, while I'm of course interested and in, in attempt to be scrupulous, scrupulous in matters historical, I don't chase down every uh, statistic. Um, I you know I do preface it with saying that Grant is not always correct about certain things. I'm more interested in the way that he remembers it and the way that he chooses to represent war. So I will often delve into those moments where he doesn't describe something. What Grant fails to mention here is some aspect of the the conflict. So, for example, when he talks about Casualties uh, on a battlefield. I will often pair those moments with a detailed description, for example, of field hospitals from physicians of the time, from surgeons of the time, or accounts of those from a contemporary novelist. So the the novelist John William De Forest, for example, who has a book um, based a novel based on his own war service, has a detailed description of a scene in a field hospital. Grant doesn't offer that, so I want to sort of use those moments in 19th century literature as a Kind of compliment to flesh out the book.
0: I once asked John Y. Simon, who's deceased since 2008, uh, what he didn't like about Grant. And he was responsible for the Grant papers in the very beginning. And he, in a different way, at a different time, pointed this out. We're going to run some videos so you can see what he said and give us the background on this.
2: It's absolutely true that in December 1862, Grant issued orders expelling the Jews as a class that's the way he put it, it was inaccurate, from the uh, Department of the Tennessee. That doesn't mean the state of Tennessee. That means the entire department that stretches from uh, occupied areas in uh, Mississippi all the way up through uh, Kentucky into uh, Paducah. And it was an act of extreme prejudice and extreme uh, ignorance, of which Grant in time came to be uh, deeply ashamed. So ashamed that he doesn't mention it in his memoirs and doesn't speak of it uh, later on. Your take on that.
1: I think John Simon's absolutely right. It is uh, Julia Dent in her memoirs does mention it briefly, and she calls it an obnoxious order. And That's it his was. wife. Yes, yeah. yes. And uh, he... Uh, he ought to have been ashamed of it, and he was. And of course, Lincoln immediately rescinded it. Um, and he—that d- is a conspicuous uh, absence from from the memoirs. He does not re- retread that, but he did spend the rest of his life in various contexts trying to atone for it. And 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 uh, I think he was rightly deeply ashamed.
0: When you did your research for this, uh, where where's the best research that you did?
1: Um. I would say there are a variety of places. So the the library at Mississippi State, um, the Library of Congress. West Point has, uh, fortunately some really fascinating documents relating to, particularly to Grant's time as a cadet, um, but also some letters and other things from from later on. And the other thing that the West Point uh, Special Collections offers is the personal, some of the letters and papers of Grant's contemporaries. So you find things from Sherman, you find things um, from uh, George Crook, you find all sorts of records, and you can see the way, what it reinforced for me was the how intimate their relationships were. And everyone knew everyone. Grant will often mention in his memoirs, oh, yes, I knew so-and-so at West Point, or I fought with so-and-so in the Mexican War. And it's his way of suggesting that he knew how someone's mind worked, he knew how that person would respond in a difficult situation in an emergency.
0: Uh, You've got pictures in here of the monument in New York City, and I heard you in another uh, time tell the story about a woman that you overheard standing there you know what i'm talking about yes
1: uh I, i often make a pilgrimage up to grant's tomb which isn't too far from where i live and uh it's it's visited but it's it's not it's it used to be the most popular landmark in in new york city that was early in the 20th century and uh there was a time uh, several decades ago now, I guess, where it had really fallen into disrepair, and it's since been been uh, fixed up and uh, looking much better. But I'm not sure that everybody knows what they're looking for when they go to see it, and so I did overhear someone, uh, a tourist, say to her companion, uh, I didn't know, even know we had a president named Grant.
0: What um, was your reaction yeah. when you heard that?
1: Well, I sort of laughed. I didn't intervene, but I did laugh. Um, and it, it struck me because I, I think, for me, I don't... I mean, obviously, I, I'm interested in Grant as president, and that presidency was uh, was puzzling and troubling in many ways. Um, but when I think of him, I think I think of him... Uh, first, as a writer, because that's how I first encountered him—not um, as a general, not as a president, but as someone who was writing about all of these experiences. And had, so, had he I... written
0: anything other than this memoir?
1: Uh, he well, of course, you can read his his wartime dispatches and letters, and so I, and I had read some of those uh, from earlier in his life. Um, and then he did write near the end of his life a few articles uh, for the Century Magazine, uh, particular uh, the first one on Shiloh, and that was how. Uh, The Century magazine actually first encouraged him to write his memoirs. And uh, it was when Mark Twain saw the deal the Century was giving him that he said, no, 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 I can do much better for you.
0: You um, I bring this up for obvious reasons. You'll see uh, this is a quote you have from Gore Vidal. Mm hmm. that U- Ulysses S. Grant's memoir was the best American prose, proof that genius is innate since West Point's English Department in his day, and he went there, did not dazzle. Right. West Point's English Department now only, uh, not only did not dazzle, it did not exist in Grant's day. It was established in the 1920s. Right. What's the English Department like now at West Point?
1: The English Department now, I think, is rather like English departments elsewhere. Um, we teach... Uh, several courses. We teach two courses in our core curriculum, uh, a composition and a literature course. We also teach philosophy in our department, so it is now a department of English and philosophy. And then we have English and philosophy majors.
0: You write a uh, quote often from uh, William T. Sherman, William Tecumseh Sherman. Yes. What was, he, what was his relationship, personal relationship, with uh, Grant?
1: So he and Grant first encountered one another at West Point, although Sherman was senior to Grant, and uh, they became reacquainted during the Civil War. And it was, I think, Grant's, for both men, it was the most important professional relationship of their lives. And uh, it was characterized by by a great deal of trust. Um, They had disagreements on occasion. In fact, uh, at Vicksburg, when Grant decided to... uh, his, decided on his strategy of, of running the batteries uh, below the fortress at Vicksburg and coming up from the south, um, actually uh, cutting loose from his base of supply, Sherman cautioned him against it. He was, not, he was opposed to this and wrote, wrote him a note saying this. Um, and of course, that, that, uh, s- that strategy of cutting loose from supplies is something that Sherman took to an extreme Uh, in his march through the South later on in the war. But they had the kind of relationship where Sherman felt that he could uh, register his uh, disagreement. And I think that's actually, in many ways, a a sign of true loyalty, is that you're willing to uh, register your disagreement, and then when that complaint has been lodged and the decision has been made, then to carry it out, um, which Sherman did.
0: This is in odd um, quotes and all that from the book, and I'll get your reaction to it. This is from uh, what Grant wrote. The conceit was knocked out of me by two little circumstances that happened soon after the arrival of the clothes, which gave me a distaste for military uniform that I've never recovered from. Right. What's the background on that?
1: So he uh, he's often uh, pictured in the Civil War wearing just sort of a, a regular coat with the general's Uh, straps, as he called them, the the insignia, the shoulder straps. He really didn't like uh, grand uniforms. And uh, he tells that story in his youth of getting that first uniform and being mocked uh, by people at home. And his other model in this was Zachary Taylor, whom he encountered in the Mexican War. He actually served two generals in the Mexican War, Taylor and uh, Winfield Scott. And the Those two generals' nicknames, Old Rough and Ready for Taylor and Old Fuss and Feathers for Scott, I think in many ways emblematizes uh, their difference. Scott used to like to wear all the uniform, Grant says, that regulation allowed. Taylor was often seen in civilian clothes and a farmer's hat to protect him from the sun, sitting sideways on his horse casually watching the battle. Um, And Scott was always uh, dressed to the nines. And I think that uh, Grant took Taylor as a model in that and also, he took Taylor as a model in his prose. He said that Taylor wrote orders uh, in language so plain there could be no mistaking it, and that's his own.
0: A- as you know, Abraham Lincoln was a private or whatever in the Mexican War. Right. Uh, did he, yeah. uh, did uh, Lincoln and Grant ever cross paths in the Mexican War?
1: Uh, no. And what year, So, what well, years so were Lincoln those? was in the the uh, I believe in the um, the Blackfoot War, as it was called. I think. And then his involvement in the Mexican War, um, actually by that time, I yeah, think that's right. a he was in Congress. Yeah, he was against it. Yeah, and and spoke out against it and was ridiculed as uh, as a, as yeah. a result. Um, and so I'm not even sure at the time that they would have known they would have known each other. But Lincoln's own account um, of his war service uh, is, he, you know, he says that uh, he he um, is a very self deprecating moment about his very unheroic uh, uh, war service.
0: Here's an example of how you use literature, uh, and these are your words. Grant's playful, rather literary vignette calls to mind a moment in Charles Dickens' Great Expectations. What were you doing there? What's that, what's that story?
1: So uh, Great Expectations was actually uh, in my mind because I have several times uh, when I was working on this because I teach it to the cadets, um, and it was... Uh, serialized um, and then published uh, in the 1860s. And you can actually see cadets at the time. We have the library registers checking it out from the library and reading it. Um, and so I I sort of associate it with that time period. Um, and there is a, a moment there in Great Expectations where Pip, who is uh, the son, the um, he's apprenticed to a blacksmith and has uh, very sort of modest expectations until he gets an unknown benefactor. And one of the first things that happens is he gets a new suit of clothes and he parades through town in his new suit of clothes and is mocked mercilessly by a young boy in the town. And that reminded me very much of that scene where Grant himself is mocked uh, by someone in town when he's wearing his brand new uniform.
0: When you teach the plebes at west point when do you notice that they get really interested in what you're talking about
1: well the wonderful thing about plebes is that they're interested day one um that they have been plunged into a rather new world and a new culture and they're full of curiosity about it and uh they have a they have an energy and a real curiosity and i think that if you have a passion for your subject matter no matter what it is they respond uh in kind
0: you started teaching at the academy what year? In
1: 1997.
0: So you've known some of these young men that went to war.
1: Yes, uh, men and women who have went to war, who have gone to war and come home. Some of them have gone to war repeatedly. Um, one of my former students, who's uh, now a major, uh, referred to his life for several years there as a war commuter. That he sort of it became normal to come to go back and forth, uh, in his case, to uh, Afghanistan uh, several times.
0: You have a footnote on page 328. Grant expresses his frustration with reporters on several occasions in the memoirs. Franker Still, in his correspondence, he was often frustrated and personally wounded by the false stories that circulated in newspapers about his incompetence and, worse yet, his drinking.
1: Yes, he was very... He, Frustrated with the press, in fact, he did praise the confederacy for this for their treatment of the press. He said in a sense that they had complete control over the press, and he was not particularly happy with the rather freewheeling reporters who arrived uh, in camp, and told various stories and and rumors, he knew very well the damage that rumors could do to the morale of an army, and so I think that was a particular frustration. but yes, he was often uh, and does not have a particularly progressive attitude uh, toward reporters or the press um, and uh, i think was was particularly frustrated with the uh, the tall, what he regarded as tall tales, or even just criticism that the the press would render.
0: Another footnote: You, have, you quote John Keegan, who's deceased also, but a war course, I mean, a war historian, argues that Grant had a particular aptitude for the telegraph. And then later on, you say the service's first historian, William Plum, who was an operator in the Western Theater, writes. Thus organized, the United States Military Telegraph became the medium of communications by which hundreds of thousands of armed men were directed from point to point, commissary subsistence and ordnance stores ordered, and the innumerable necessities of great armies made known, as well as the story of their victories and defeats. How important was that telegraph?
1: I think— Many people recognize that one of Grant's great strengths was in figuring out how to use the technology of the day and the telegraph and the railroad being the two greatest examples of that. And I think it was hugely important in being able to communicate, uh, in being able to transport, obviously, with uh, great dispatch, uh, large numbers of, of supplies as well as troops. Um, and I think Grant adapted quite well uh, to those technologies and used the telegraph quite frequently. Of course, there were also times, telegraph notwithstanding, um, that he lost, for example, complete contact with Sherman and just trusted that Sherman was going about his business in Georgia, which, which, of course, he was. Um, and so those technologies had limitations, too, and they still had to use scouts and, um, and couriers.
0: You have 70 chapters and a conclusion and an introduction <laughs> and an editor's note. Right. Uh, did you ever count up the number of footnotes you have?
1: I did not count the number of footnotes. Um, so, yeah, I can't answer you on that.
0: <laughs> so, I, I mean, if someone hasn't seen your book, it right. has the memoirs of Grant, and then right. below that on pages you have your explanations. Yes. Um, how did you keep track of all that?
1: Well, um, the, the, the wonderful one of the wonderful aspects about the book was this: the quality of design, and that I that I was more involved in that than I had been in previous projects because of the illustrations as well. So there was a great challenge sometimes in figuring out when I was reading around in different memoirs or different uh, pieces from the period, what would be the best place for a fantastic description of this or that, um, and so it did occasion a lot of reshuffling and a lot and moving things around to find just the right moment. Uh, to uh, illustrate a particular aspect of war or also um, to illustrate what was happening uh, to civilians at the time. Because I think we tend to forget, that's another reason I liked going to battlefields, was that we tend to forget that people were trying to carry on, farmers and uh, people were living their lives uh, while armies marched through their towns and their fields and uh, that's easily forgotten, I think. So sometimes uh, using diaries, particularly, for example, uh, during the Siege of Vicksburg, using diaries from civilians who were trapped in the city at the time offered a counterpoint to Grant's description of all of the siege operations uh, along his lines. You have a
0: a full page on page 691 about uh, casualties, and it starts out with, Historians estimate a total of 195,000 Union and 215,000 Confederate prisoners of war. Approximately 15.5% of the former and 12% of the latter died. And then later on, you quote from the Sanitary Commission's 1864 report on famine. What was that?
1: So, I'm not sure exactly which...
0: Well, let me read to you what okay. you what you quote. <clears throat> it was about the middle of last autumn that this process of slow starvation became intolerable, injurious, and cruel. The cornbread began to be the roughest and coarsest description. Portions of the cob and husk were often found ground in with the meal. I'll jump ahead. The peas were often full of worms or maggots in the... Uh, uh, in, in a, was it, a Chrysalis state? Is that the way you pronounce it? And which, <clears throat> when they made soup, floated on the surface. What were you trying to do?
1: So I believe that's the description of conditions in Libby Prison in, in Richmond. Correct. Yeah. Um, so the Sanitary Commission, an organization of volunteers, uh, was trying to detail the various privations in southern uh In prisoner of war camps, the treatment of uh, southern prisoners in northern camps, uh, particularly in New York State, um, was also quite brutal, um, and the conditions freezing. To be a prisoner of war uh, during this during any conflict um, is is a horrible thing. In this conflict, it often entailed. that those kinds of hardships, that the the food and the conditions were were terrible, and Libby was particularly bad um, in that respect, as was Andersonville. Uh, prison. Did you go to either prison? So I have not visited those the those sites. How have have the story, How overall has
0: have historians done on capturing the Civil War, and how well did the government do at the time keeping records?
1: The, the Civil War, in particular, the number of casualties generated, uh, I think caused the the uh, the War Department actually to keep records in a much more regular fashion so the the War Department afterwards um, has the the uh, official records as it 's called of the War of the Rebellion and a multi volume uh, compendium of northern and southern war correspondence and dispatches and orders um, and was an, an amazing record-keeping project and i think the sheer numbers of people involved um, made the, made the war department realize uh, that, that record-keeping was a, a vital aspect of this and the idea that it could tell and preserve uh... the history of the war in these records
0: i just noticed in one of the footnotes the name uh... brooke simpson and Brooke Simpson was here in the year 2000 talking about Grant. Here is something that he had to say about uh, the general.
2: And I think he's an extremely able commander who was able to master challenges that uh, felled other men. Uh, uh, that uh, His success was not inevitable uh, by any means, that he was a, a master at improvising, responding on the spur of the moment to changes in plan and changes in circumstances. I think he did that well. I think, on the other hand, he played favorites and sometimes was a little too stubborn uh, in adhering to those favorites and and, uh, uh, not taking a second look at some people he did not like. Um, Sometimes he was so interested in offensive action that he forgot that the enemy also had a will and might try to impose it upon him. Uh, So I think there were things that Grant did that um, weren't uh, so shrewd.
1: Yeah, I, I think the, the point about Grant's aggressiveness is, is right on the mark, in that his errors were those of of being too aggressive. Uh, he has a, a moment early when he's first in command in the Civil War, and he's chasing a Confederate commander named Harris uh, through Missouri. And he has this incident, and he uh, he comes up on Harris's camp that had just been vacated, and he said that he realized the enemy was as afraid of him as he was of the enemy, and he calls that a valuable lesson. Um, but I think sometimes uh, he didn't always uh, remember uh, certain, preca- take certain precautions. And I, so I think sometimes those errors of, of aggression um, didn't, didn't yield great results. Um, but I think on the whole, he was keen to make decisions. And was extremely frustrated by commanders who, and impatient with commanders who took a long time, who delayed, who wouldn't act. That was his great frustration with, with various commanders.
0: As you know, William McFeely had a book, and we don't, he's not been here, but uh, we don't have any excerpts from him. Uh, and there are lots of others. Have these books sold?
1: I think you know? so. I mean, I think, I think certainly the, the most recent books, I mean, those are, I, I guess, have been much in the news of late, I think have, have sold very well. Um, and of course, McFeely's book won a, a Pulitzer Prize. Um, and I think that Civil War history uh, is, there's, there are always enthusiasts who want to read the latest take on a given figure, um, particularly uh, figures who have undergone revision, uh, like, like Grant himself.
0: Uh, the same footnote that has Brooks Simpson's uh, reference in it, it starts out this way. Uh, Perhaps more than any other engagement, the assault at Cold Harbor gave Grant a reputation as a butcher. Why?
1: Well, the assault at Cold Harbor... Um, Unfortunately, the Confederates had already had time to entrench, and this assault was ordered, um, and the casualties were devastating. And I have some accounts in there of of uh, the the cries of the wounded and the, the sheer number of, of casualties. And that and w- one of the attacks at Vicksburg are the, the two things that Grant says he regrets the most. He also regretted uh, the... Attack um, the the explosion of the crater at Petersburg, and this is a moment. Brooke Simpson, in that segment you played, talked about some of Grant's errors as a commander. Um, I think in some of those instances, because he was very willing to delegate and did not want to um, to spend a lot of his time um, worrying about matters that his subordinates could. Uh, do, and I think, as a result, freed himself up to think about strategic issues sometimes he didn't intervene when he should have, and I think he let the the squabbles of uh, other commanders sometimes interfere with the effectiveness of various operations. But he he owns that that era at Cold Harbor, and I think that is the thing that his detractors seize on, so that in those low periods of his reputation, when he's called a drunk and a butcher, it's Cold Harbor um, that people really do have in mind. And it was a, a devastating and horrible battle.
0: All right, the last person I ever expected to read about in your book was Tallulah Bankhead. Yes. Who was she and why did she make it to your book?
1: Well, Tallulah Bankhead (laughs) is in the book for a couple of reasons. Um, One was uh, I did mention the little foxes. There's a, there's a, um, an allusion to Sherman in the South and in the, in the Little Foxes, and I, it was yet another of those pop culture, popular culture references to the Civil War in the 20th century that I wanted to bring in. Um, but also her grandfather uh, was a Confederate veteran and a senator, and uh, she uh, was sometimes in Washington, I think, uh, attending various festivities with him. And so uh, he appeared, actually, and this sort of talks, this is a sort of example, I think, of the the kind of strangeness of the way that we have remembered that war, but appeared in his Confederate uh, uniform on the floor of the Senate at the occasion um, of a, a reunion, and then marched down uh... pennsylvania avenue i believe with a fellow senator who was in his union uniform and this was that sort of emblem of that strange emblem of of reconciliation Um, and uh... so I, i thought that was important uh... to talk about and to think about the ways in which those figures who had served in the confederacy made their way back into national life in various contexts
0: his name was john bankhead he was a senator from alabama and it's—you uh, quote in here um let's see if I can make sure I keep it straight—that in his 1920 memorial address for uh, Bankhead Senator Henry Cabot Lodge of Massachusetts, the state of radical Republican— Charles Sumner, emphasized unity above all, and i just read a little bit of it. Two years before his death, there was held here in Washington the 27th Annual Reunion of the Confederate Veterans, and Senator Bankhead made on this floor a motion that the Senate adjourn over the day of their parade. I imagine that all who were present must recall the scene when Senator Bankhead dressed in a uniform of Confederate gray simple as always without notice and without parade arose and addressed the senate in support of his motion
1: yeah i, I when you read it again i'm amazed yet again that um someone could appear, that a senator could appear in his old confederate uniform on the floor of the of the united states senate it is a it's a remarkable moment uh, i think
0: in our history later on it shows you how this book is on page 895. <laughs> it's a, what is it, a $45 book? Um, you have a John Russell uh, Young reported Ulysses and Julia Grant's recollection of the day of the assassination. Uh, here are some of the quotes. The darkest day of my life, said the general, was the day I heard of Lincoln's assassination. I did not know what it meant. Here was the rebellion put down in the field and starting up in the uh, the gutters. We had fought it as a war, and now we had to fight it as an assassination. Uh, He goes on, Mrs. Grant, while I was with the president, a note came from Mrs. Grant saying she must leave Washington that night. She wanted to go to Burlington to see our children. I was glad to uh, have the note, as I did not want to go to the theater. He'd been invited to go to the theater with Lincoln. So I made my excuse to Lincoln, and at the proper hour, we started for the train. What else happened that night? Where did they go?
1: Yeah, so uh, Grant and, and uh, Ulysses and Julia Grant were to go to, they had been invited uh, to go to Ford's Theater that night with uh, the president and Mrs. Lincoln. And uh, I'm not sure that uh, Julia Grant and, and Mary Lincoln got along all that well, um, but uh, I think they really uh, wanted to get back to Burlington, New Jersey, where their children were, And uh, Grant, too, I think, was happiest uh, with his family um, and wanted to get back to them. So they ended up going straight home. But, of course, Grant had to turn right around and go back to Washington um, as soon as he learned of the assassination. So it was just sort of by chance that he was not there uh, in the box. They
0: were on their way to the train. This is the amazing thing about this. Uh, footnote: As we were driving along Pennsylvania Avenue, the horseman drove past us on a gallop, and this is somebody that had been rude to them at a lunch. And back again around our carriage, looking into it, Mrs. Grant said, there is the man who sat near us at lunch today with some other men and tried to overhear our conversation. He was so rude that we left the dining room. Uh, turns out it was John Wilkes booth.
1: Yeah, the the conspirators were sort of it was it was so mysterious, and I think that that afterwards that they, I think they probably regarded themselves as quite fortunate to have escaped.
0: Later on, Walt Whitman comes into the picture. Of why Walt Whitman? Right. And that's part of your your English and your yes. Yeah,
1: so so Walt Whitman, uh, both in his uh, poetry and Drum Taps, um, and in his account of working as a, a volunteer uh, nurse. Uh, and uh, tending to wounded soldiers, writes a great deal about the Civil War and uh, writes a great deal um, about... One of the things that's interesting to me about Whitman is that he notes in the beginning the great enthusiasm for war, Um, the volunteers marching off, thinking it would sort of be a lark and wouldn't last very long, um, parading through the streets of Manhattan, Um, and then, of course, the war turning into something very different. And then he also... Uh, writes a lovely portrait of Grant um, in which he suggests um, that he is a sort of has some distinctively American virtues of a kind of modesty um, and uh, has a, Whitman seems to have a great it's a very affectionate portrait
0: of Grant. Uh, we're about out of time. You have Gary Cooper's in this and movies are in it and Frank Capra and it goes on and on. Yeah. If Grant was sitting here today, what's the one question you'd want to ask him first?
1: Oh, wow. Um, actually, and this will probably come as a surprise, I would want to hear more about something he alludes to only briefly there, um, and that's what I think of as uh, the lost years. So it would be about those years, those that time uh, in the Pacific Northwest where his letters reveal to Julia how miserable he is. Um, but I would sort of want to hear more about how that period alone shaped his thinking about the army and about war itself.
0: Our guest teaches English literature literature at West Point. Her name is Elizabeth D. Samet, and this is the Annotated Memoirs of Ulysses S. Grant. Thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you very much.
2: Free transcripts or to give us your comments about this program, visit us at QA.org. QA q and programs are also available as C-SPAN podcasts.